Lapita Ha, and they don't have future tense and they don't have past tense. And they don't have a word for yesterday and they don't have a word for tomorrow. They just have a word for today and a word that means other day. It's almost all their conversation is about the present. And I have argued that that cultural value of the present being more important than the past and the future leads to a number of interesting characteristics in their language and their culture. Today I'm here with Daniel Everett. It's been a long time that I wanted to talk to you. And first question is, tell me some stuff about your life because you have probably the most interesting life in the world. <laughs> well, uh, my, my life started uh, almost uh, 72 years ago now in uh, Southern California, right on the border with Mexico and um, grew up in uh, some poverty, but I got very interested in languages because I was right on the border with Mexico. So I was always interested in other languages and the first other language that I learned to speak more or less well was Spanish. Um, when I was a teenager, um, I was involved in, as most people were in the 60s, uh, most of the people I knew, not most people, but uh, in in uh, drugs and rock and roll and stuff like this. And um, uh, then when I was 17, I met uh, a family of missionaries that had just come back from Brazil. And their life sounded very interesting, and they were a very happy family, and my family was not that happy. So um, I converted to Christianity and did all the necessary training and got a degree in Bible and theology and went off to Brazil as a missionary in 1977 to work with a group of people called the Pitaha. But um, the interesting thing about the Pitaha is that they weren't interested in anything we had to tell them. They already were pretty happy with their lives, and they were atheists. None of them believed in God or had any concept of God, actually. And as they would ask me questions and talk to me about it, and I saw how happy their lives were, eventually... Um, I abandoned my own beliefs and uh, one day told the Pitahas that I myself didn't believe in God anymore. And they laughed and they said, well, you're now, now you're like us. So um, how, how, how much time that uh, from when you went to convert them into Christianity to become an atheist? Well, I started having my most, I started having severe doubts within a few years. Um, and, uh, but I made it public. It took me quite a while. It, it, um, was, um, about 15 years before I became public, uh, with this stuff. And, um, at the same time, I was doing a PhD in, uh, Brazil at a Brazilian university, the University of Campinas in the state of Sao Paulo in linguistics. And I was more interested in linguistics and, started writing and publishing, eventually teaching in Portuguese at a Brazilian university. Um, but uh, since then, I've done field work in many parts of the world, and I've published in anthropology and linguistics and philosophy and um, various other areas. And um, right now, I'm, I'm finishing a book on uh, philosophy um, and the philosophy of language. Um, but... Um, but I still maintain contact with Brazil, and I travel to Brazil. I haven't been able to get back to the Pitaha for a number of years, uh, 
but I'm hopeful that next year I will be able to get back to the Pitaha and, uh, and visit with them and see how they're doing. Um, although my ex-wife uh, still lives there and she sends me films of them from time to time and I'm able to record messages and send them to her on WhatsApp and she plays them for the people and they record responses and then I, I respond to that. Oh, oh uh, I have a question. So you broke up with your wife and she still lives there. Like how, how uh, so you broke up because she was, sti she still in Piraha. Like how does that? Well, she happen? is, um, <laughs> she, she still is a Christian missionary. And when I decided that that's not what I wanted to do and that I didn't believe in God, that led to the breakup of our relationship. But, um, Usually we're still friendly, uh, and we still talk and we see each other a couple of times a year when we do events with our children. Um, and she still sends me WhatsApp messages about the Pitaha because we're the only two people in the world really that can talk much about the Pitaha and speak to the Pitaha in their language. So, um, so she, uh, does like to get my opinion on things and I like to see the contact with the Pitaha. So, uh, that, that is uh, good. She doesn't, she lives right near the reservation on the Trans Amazon Highway. So the Pitaha go out and visit her all the time. So, uh, how long it took you to speak, uh, the language of Pitaha when you went there? Like, when I landed in the Pitaha for the first time in 1977, the previous missionary had given me one phrase, which means, um, only speak Pitaha to me, and it is, And when he told me that, I I was just overwhelmed. I, I couldn't repeat it, I mean, because it was just seemed too hard. But I eventually uh, started making progress, actually making progress right away. And um, by the end of the first uh, several months in the village, I could communicate in a primitive way about most topics. And after a couple of years, I could speak it fairly well. Recently, uh, there was an, a conference in my honor at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And one of the papers had, uh, the, the researcher had me spend two hours in an uh, MRI machine while I listened to Peter Ha to see where Peter Ha was in my brain and and her research can tell people how well you speak a language based on what it does in your brain. And so uh, she gave a paper there and 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 told people that um, my Peter Ha seems to be fluent according to her uh, research and she's probably the leading researcher in the world on language and the brain. Uh, in my opinion. And uh, so I was really happy to see that. But it, it's not easy to learn any other language. All languages are hard. I sometimes people ask me what's the hardest language to learn. And I always say the one that is least like your language, the one you can't currently speak. So, um, but all languages are hard because they contain all the knowledge of an entire people and they require a lot more than just knowing what verbs to use and how to make a sentence. Languages are incredibly complex and it's a privilege to learn new ones. So I want to ask uh, later a question about uh, some 
you had some controversies during your life in the linguistic sector in in some uh, different sector which uh, i want to ask more questions about that but uh i want to ask first about like what did you learn personally you were there with this tribe like what did it do to yourself to, that you spend so the time there with the piraha well it changed my life um I could say completely because I went from being a very strong Christian believer to an atheist professor of linguistics and anthropology. And, uh, but in positive, positively, it's taught me a lot about other people and it's given me a lot of patience. It's given me a lot of strength. These controversies that you alluded to, Uh, it's exactly my time with the Pitaha that has given me a lot of strength to face controversy and things because um, life is very uh, physically demanding in the Amazon. And uh, um, when you can build up that resistance and physical resistance to the demands of a, of a rigorous life, it does give you some more ability to handle lots of other kinds of uh, hardship and con controversies a form of uh, hardship because none of us really want to be the center of a controversy. But uh, as I began to discover things about the Pitaha that I never imagined in a human language or human culture and started writing about these things, um, they were so unlike what people had expected that it led to people saying, this can't be true, this can't be right. Um, As the years have gone on and more and more people have done research there and done research on other languages, other tribal societies, uh, my claims don't sound that unusual anymore. But at the time that these claims were first being made, and for some people they still are very, very controversial because if my interpretation of the Pitaha language is correct, then um, the what was the major theory of human language must be wrong. Can you explain me what does that mean? Yes. Um, If you are right, then all we know is wrong. <laughs> not all we know is wrong. One particular theory is wrong. Um, I mean, most of what we know doesn't get affected by this. But, uh, um Well, I, I was at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in 2005 and 2006 in, um, in, in, in Leipzig, Germany. And, um, there, I was thinking about Peter Hahn, a whole number of facts that seemed to go together in some way, but I wasn't sure how they went together. It had to do with religion and kinship and language and, uh, numbers and colors and all sorts of things. So one night, um, because the Max Planck is such a wonderful place, it's open 24 hours a day for researchers, and I live there, so I would be in my office all night long sometimes. And I was in my office writing this paper, which eventually was published, uh, in which I argued that the Pitaha um, didn't have words for colors, they didn't have words for numbers, they had the simplest kinship system known, Um And several other things, but I also mentioned the fact that the Pitaha did not seem to have recursion in their sentences. Recursion is the ability to put 
one thing inside another of the same type. So if I say um, John is here, that's just a simple sentence. If I say Bill said that John is here, that's a complicated sentence that actually is two sentences. Bill said that, and John is here, and they've been put together to form one sentence. And most languages of the world do this. Um, so um, I didn't even realize it, but at the time I was writing this paper, uh, another paper was already getting a lot of attention, and that was a paper written by uh, Noam Chomsky, um, Mark Hauser, at that time of Harvard University, and um, Tecumseh Fitch, who is now a biologist at the University of Vienna. And they argued that recursion is the basic foundation of all human language. And so I now was talking about a language in which I claimed it didn't even have this characteristic. So that meant they were wrong if I was right. Uh, and since their theory, because it was Chomsky's theory, was the most popular theory of language, it meant that a lot of people who worked in this theory of language were also potentially mistaken. So what, uh, I, I have a question to clarify. So basically you said that language is not, uh, it is not fundamentally need, need uh, recur recursion. So this is what you are claiming. And what uh, Noam Chomsky is saying that is fundamental the recursion in language. So this yes. is the, the, the argument. Yes. Just to clarify. After, after I published my paper, at first Chomsky and I corresponded quite a bit. And it was clear we didn't see eye to eye. But his claim changed. And he said that, well, I didn't say that all languages have recursion. And he tried to say that uh, a different kind of operation was what he was talking about in the article. But that's not really correct. In fact, sometimes I wonder if Chomsky even read the article that became so famous because he wasn't the first author uh, um, on the paper. In any case, the paper definitely makes these claims, and many people have written about this since then, agreeing with me on the paper makes these claims. Chomsky's paper is that all recursion is the foundation of human language. And therefore, if a language doesn't have recursion, what does that mean for the claim that language, that recursion is foundational? Well, either Either all languages have recursion or no language needs recursion. I mean, if Pitaha doesn't have recursion, maybe many other languages don't have recursion. And in fact, a recent paper that's coming out, well, so there have been several papers in the last couple of years arguing that there are many other languages that seem to lack recursion. And um, um, But if you don't have to have recursion in a language, then no language needs it. And so there's no... It doesn't mean anything then to say that recursion is the foundation of language if languages don't actually have to have it. Um, and so uh, Chomsky and I have discussed this at great length. And um, uh, at the conference at MIT that I mentioned, which was about my work that happened um, just a couple of weeks ago on June 8th, um, all the talks from that conference are on the are on YouTube now. Um, uh, many people spoke about... Um, 
the fact that my work really is a counterexample to Chomsky, and they talked about the claims that it wasn't. Anyway, um, so recursion turns out to be very important, but it's, I wouldn't want people to think of the Peter Ha language as somehow primitive or too simple, uh, because most people in most languages use recursion very little. I mean, we don't tend to have very complicated sentences. If I'm lecturing to a class on a complicated subject, I might use really complicated sentences. I probably shouldn't, but, uh, you know, sometimes I do. But if two people are just talking, having lunch together and talking, they don't tend to use really complicated sentences. So clearly, complicated sentences are not crucial to getting our ideas across. The most important and creative aspect of human language, from my perspective, is our ability to tell stories. And when we tell stories, our thoughts show a lot of complexity. So even a Peter Haas story, you can take a sentence from that story and it will not have recursion. But the whole story will have one idea built inside another idea inside another idea. And this shows that the Pitaha think recursively. They simply choose not to have that in the way they build their sentences, but they do have it in their stories, which Chomsky's theory does ignore stories entirely. There's nothing, it has nothing to say about stories. It only talks about sentences. Um, so the fact that they have recursion in stories is irrelevant for Chomsky. Uh, they need to have it in sentences where, where they don't. But they are very bright people. Their language is, is incredibly complicated. To give you an example of what's complicated about the language, even though they have simple sentences, in English, a verb can have the, at most five forms. So if I take the verb to sing, I have sing, sang, sung, singing, sings, five forms. If I take Portuguese or Spanish, every verb is going to have 30 to 50 different forms. You know, you've got the present tense, the past tense, the subjunctive, the imperative, you know, I've got all these different types. Uh, but in Pitaha, a verb can have over 65,000 possible forms. And that's really it's systematic. There's a theory, there's a theory behind it, but it's still complicated. And so when we say that their sentences are simple and they are, their verbs are very complicated, much more complicated than languages of Europe. Um, and only other languages of the Americas tend to be that complicated in their verbs. It's a, it's a characteristic of American Indian languages. Most American Indian languages from, uh, North America to South America are very complicated in their verbs. Not all of them, but most of them. So, so, so I want to take a step back and take a bit more because I think you are probably one of the best, if not the best, the linguistics in the world. When a language occurred first in the world, then what the, and uh, how, how it evolved, uh, okay. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's something I've been, I've written a book about that, uh, how language began. And I've thought about that a great deal. And I've done work with, uh, archaeologists on this as well and other anthropologists. Um, there is a theory, um, that language began fairly recently, no more than a hundred thousand years ago. And in my book, I say that, you know, that can't be right because we see symbolic 
uh, activity, symbols in, in stone tools, uh, symbols in burial, and the way that villages were built. And we also see technology like boat building um, over a million years ago by Homo erectus who uh, traveled almost the entire world. As far as we know, they didn't make it to the Americas and they didn't make it to Australia or the islands of the Pacific, but they made it pretty much everywhere else. They made it to Indonesia and to the island of Flores and they made it to uh, the Philippines. They made it to uh, Sri Lanka and they made it to Taiwan. So they were traveling all over the world and the only way they could have done this was by boats we know that they had villages of certain complexity. So I argue that based on the evidence that they use symbols and the fact that from my theory of language, symbols are the basic building blocks of human language and no other creature in the world can create symbols like human beings. What do uh, you mean symbols is the basic of okay, human so let language? Me, so there, to simplify, there... We communicate in signs, and there are three basic types of signs. There are what people call icons. A picture is an icon. An icon resembles what it's about. So, um, you know, if, if I see um, uh, my reflection in a river, my reflection is an icon of me. It looks like me. And so that's, that's a sign. It's not a symbol, though, but it's a sign of me. An index, there's a physical connection to what it, it's about. So if I see a cloud in the sky, I can say, oh, it's going to rain. There, I didn't see any rain, nor does a cloud look like rain, but a cloud indexes rain. It indicates that rain is coming. If I see a footprint, that's physically connected to whatever caused it. So I can say, oh, there was a horse here or there was a man here based on the footprint. But a symbol, um, and I'm simplifying, is something that's created by a culture, by a society. So the American flag is a symbol. It doesn't look like America, and it's not physically connected to America. So it's not an icon, and it's not an index. But it is something that the culture uses to represent America and most countries have flags. So whatever country has a flag, their flag is a symbol of them. Um, there, are, there are many different kinds of symbols. So you can take a tool like a hammer and a tool like a, a sickle or, you know, which is used, you know, scythe used to cut grass in the field or cut wheat. And if you put them together with the hammer over the sickle, then they're a symbol of communism. Uh, suddenly they become a symbol these two these two tools and uh, tools very often become symbols um, and that was one of the claims I made about Homo erectus is that we see evidence in their tools that they were for more than just doing work but that they represented things to them so you can recognize different erectus communities based on the way they made their tools you can see that some people made fancier tools than other people to sort of show off um, you can see an example um, that I, but not everybody, interprets as a, a tool that's, it's very colorful and it was buried with a Homo erectus skeleton, you know, now a skeleton or remains. And that seems to have been some sort of um, symbol at death of that person. So 
Um, and, and in my theory, once you have symbols and they're produced regularly, then you have language. You can, and then a language is just putting symbols in an order, you know. So, um, sign languages use hand symbols and put them in certain orders. So, you don't need to be able to speak with consonants and vowels to have a language. Um, and you don't need many consonants and vowels to have a language. Some people say, well, Homo erectus couldn't make all the sounds that we could make today. That might be true. It's not clear that that's true. But if it were true, it doesn't really matter because there are lots of languages that have very few sounds, um, but they communicate just fine. You know, English has 26 sounds, more or less. That At least it has that many letters of the alphabet. And um, whereas we know that other languages have over 115 sounds, Pidaha, where I worked the longest, only has 11 sounds if you're a man and 10 sounds if you're a woman because they use one sound less. Um, and so... Um, you know, 10 sounds is not that much, but they can communicate anything there is to communicate um, as long as they have a cultural space for it. So um, the evidence to me is pretty overwhelming that Homo erectus had language. Uh, this is still controversial. Um, I don't really appreciate why people find it controversial, but it, but the evidence to me is overwhelming that language entered the world over a million years ago, probably closer to two million years ago with the appearance of Homo erectus. I mean, chimpanzees and, and apes, gorillas, I mean, we are an ape, but gorillas and chimpanzees have, have very complicated communication systems. You know, chimpanzees have communication systems that are just right up there as some of the most complicated communication systems. And Homo erectus was much more intelligent than a chimpanzee. They weren't quite as intelligent as us, but their brain size was about um, three quarters or more of our brain size. So they had at least 75% of our brain size. And how smart do you have to be to have a language? Well, Someone once said, well, with their brain size, they probably weren't any smarter than an eight-year-old. Well, eight-year-olds can talk pretty well. Uh, so it's not clear that that, I mean, you don't have to be that intelligent to, to have language. Look at any politician, for example. Uh, you know, a lot of politicians, well, not, you know, a lot of politicians I don't think are that intelligent. Many are. I don't want to slur politicians, but uh, even the ones who aren't or don't appear to be uh, have language. So uh, it's, it's not a requirement. <laughs> so, uh, so just to rephrase what you said, uh, for me to make sure that I understand. So you said that Symbol, symbols, uh, Homo erectus had symbols, and where they had, uh, we have evidence that they had symbols. Uh, for uh, like the symbols were was actually their stuff that they were creating stuff. And we have like paintings in the in the caves or something. What I didn't understand exactly what symbols uh, okay. they used. They didn't have paintings that we've never discovered any Homo erectus paintings. Uh, we have discovered uh, Neanderthal paintings, which are already 
uh, almost 400,000 years, 350 to 400,000 years old. And Neanderthal was, Neanderthal came out of Homo erectus. So did, so did we. We're both descendants. Neanderthals and Homo sapiens are both descendants of Homo erectus. Um, but Homo erectus had tools that it, and it had shells that it decorated and it had tools that it's, it made designs on. Um, and it had tools. Recently, they found some very large tools that seemed to be too large for anybody to actually use. And so the hypothesis is that these tools were symbolic. Uh, that's great because I don't talk about those tools in my book because they hadn't been discovered yet. But those are that's exactly along the lines of what I'm talking about. One tool represents um, uh, is is symbolic of erectus from West Africa, and another tool design is symbolic of Homo erectus from East Africa. At least that's how I interpret them because they're quite different. And you can find some tools that are are made more elaborately than they need to be, you know? So they weren't just making tools for the function, but for the appearance. Um, and any tool- So that, that shows that because one was a bit more uh, fancy than the other, that shows symbolic uh, behavior. It, this is what it does. And w- the way we discuss it in a paper in, the, in an archeological journal is that, um, they were doing it to represent robustness. They were doing it to represent ability. It wasn't necessary. So why did they do it? They did it to represent the characteristics of the tool maker. So that tool was symbolic of that tool maker. And as soon as you see two symbols, this is more important than pa- cave paintings because actually a painting doesn't necessarily represent a symbol. A painting is an icon. It's more primitive than a symbol. So paintings can become symbols. Um, So, you know, maybe the Mona Lisa. Okay, so when the Mona Lisa was first painted by Leonardo da Vinci, it wasn't a symbol. It was just an icon of a young woman, some wealthy guy's concubine. Um, But now you could, you could, the Mona Lisa can be a symbol of the Renaissance it can be a symbol of the Louvre Museum in, in Paris. It can be a symbol of Western art. It, it's a symbol of a lot of things, but it wasn't created to be a symbol. It just became a symbol. And, and so I can have a shovel, you know, to work in my garden. I, I don't tend to do that very much, but I, I do have them. And uh, when I see it, it's not just a shovel, but it represents, it's symbolic to me of the work that I need to do. It's a reminder. Um, and, and like I, and as I was saying about the hammer and sickle that is used on the communist flag, this old Soviet flag, for example, um, those are just two tools that represent the tool of the factory, the hammer and the tool of the agriculture, the sickle, and it brings the workers together, workers united, and it becomes a symbol of united workers and the communist party. And, um, um, and so tools very often function as symbols and our arguments, mine and the book and the, the, uh, article that I wrote with Larry Barham, who's an archaeologist specializing in Homo erectus. Um, we argue that, uh, their tools did represent symbols, but in addition to their tools, 
they had the ability to make boats. They traveled around the world. They built villages with, uh, with relatively interesting designs. So there's a 750,000 year old village that's been discovered in Israel and it's been worked on for many decades in which, um, one part of it, the village seems to be for people just to hang out together and a social part. Another part seems to be for cleaning fish. Another part for other animals. And so they had an organized village life. And we have um, evidence of their structures, uh, their dwellings. And so they had um, societies at least as complex as modern hunter-gatherers. Can, can, I, can I ask what is language yeah that's a very good point because most people often overuse language all creatures communicate every living creature communicates ants communicate chimpanzees communicate dolphins communicate but most of us linguists would say that only humans have language i mean if somebody can prove to me that another species has language, that's fine. I, I, you know, I, I don't have anything in my theory of language that says only humans can have language. The uh, Chomsky's theory, for example, does say that only humans can have language. But mine doesn't say that. I just don't see evidence. So what is language? <clears throat> language is the productive use of symbols to communicate information. That's my definition of language. So without symbols, you can't have a language. So there's no evidence that chimpanzees have productive symbols. They have a couple of symbols. A, a symbol can be this. I can do this. Things yeah, it can and be I can sign language too, yes. It can be sign language. Al also this. Whistling, can yes. The Pinaha whistle, for example, they communicate just fine whistling. So a stop sign um, is a symbol. Um, the uh, Your car is full of little symbols when you turn it on. It's got symbols to give you your tire pressure and all this stuff. And we, um, if, if I put a, uh, a sign in the road to tell you which way to turn or slow down, these are all symbols. So symbols don't have to be part of language, but they can only emerge when we do have productive symbol creation, and that is the basis of language. There is another component of language which uh, we can call grammar, but that doesn't have to be nearly as complicated as people think. If I say John saw Mary, that's just three words, and all I have to say about that grammar is John came first, saw comes second, and Mary came third, all I need is an order of the words. Grammar can be more complicated than that. The words can be arranged in different kinds of structures. But I think there's evidence from human languages that are spoken today that those structures are not found and that all the grammar of a particular language needs is words in a row. You just need to know which order the words come in. And that already counts as grammar. Very few languages are that use only that type of grammar. But... In my book, How Language Began, I talk about levels of complexity in grammar, um, which are quite different from levels of complexity in grammar that most computer scientists talk about, and because it has to do with the evolution of language rather than uh, a formal computational theory of language.
So why you think it's important for us to understand when language started emerging in the world? I think it's very important because we can see language as a natural part of human evolution. It is, as Darwin said, as our biology evolves slowly and as our biology evolves, our cognition, which is part of our biology, evolves and we're able to start creating symbols. And, and so to get to the right point biologically, took millions of years of evolution. But once we got there, once we got that brain that was able to create symbols, we started evolving much more quickly. Because once we had language, we started culturally evolving. And once we started culturally evolving, our brains started getting bigger and bigger. And finally, Homo erectus, who was the smartest creature that ever walked the earth, uh, is not nearly as intelligent as its hands, as its descendant, Homo sapiens, you and me. Um, we are all just apes. We are all talking apes. Uh, and uh, I think we, it's good to remember that so we don't think of ourselves as some incredibly special creature on the earth. We're just talking apes who wear clothes and don't have a lot of hair. Um and it's important to recognize that we are part of this long evolutionary progression and that we've had that when the first Homo sapiens appeared, when the first modern human appeared, the people around them were already speaking. So modern humans didn't invent language, if I'm right. They grew up in a linguistic world. And so instead of being around for only 60 to 100,000 years, language has been around for 60,000 generations, about 1.8 million years. Um, and we all owe a debt to Homo erectus. The other thing about language that I would say emerges from this is that it's not, it's not a biological fact. It is a secondarily biological effect because it needs our brains, but language is basically a human invention like tools. It's just another tool that we invented to improve communication. So we communicate much better than our relatives, the chimpanzees. They communicate really well. We communicate even better. And we do it for a couple of reasons. We have bigger brains. We invented symbols. And we um, uh, have learned to cooperate. One of the greatest differences between humans and chimpanzees is we cooperate at a much greater level. Uh, so what, what evolution has to say about humans from that perspective is not that competition is our basic drive, but cooperation is our basic drive, and that humans are most human when they're cooperating and least human when they're competing. Say that again. We are more humans when we are co cooperating. And, and least less humans when we're competing. Yeah, we're more monkey-like when we're competing, and we're more human-like when we're cooperating. Uh, the business world depends on competition. Academic depends on competition. And these are models that have grown up culturally over time, but not all cultures are like this. I mean, the hunter-gatherers that I work with in the Amazon are not competitive I've seen no evidence in all my decades of working with them that they're competitive. Everybody helps everybody. 
And if you don't get food today and my friend over here got food, he's going to share his food with me or she's going to share her food with me because the women also hunt and the women fish and everybody contributes to the village. Um, and everyone's worried if somebody gets sick, uh, it's not just their family that cares. Everybody cares. So these are some of the greatest examples of cooperation and love and affection. The Pitaha are always helping each other. And they, one other thing that I like about them, unlike our society, is they like to touch. They're always touching you and, and, uh, saying hello. You know, today we, we act as though touching one another is just awful, horrible thing. And it can be because of the way we pervert it sometimes. But, but basically human warmth and just having a physical connection with other people strengthens the bonds that we have for others. So I can be sitting talking to somebody. Among the I can be talking to a man in the Pitaha, and some woman or child uh, may walk up behind me and just put their hand on my shoulder while I'm talking. Um, that's just to show that I'm part of the group. Do we touch like that? I can be. We can be walking in the dark, and they know where they're going, and I know where I'm going, and suddenly I'll feel some hand touching me somewhere, and that's just to say we're together. We're, you know, they don't need. My directions are just the opposite. I'm always lost and they always know where they're going. But, um, but they like to touch one another. And, and I really, uh, their affection for one another is, is, uh, wonderful to see. And, and it, uh, that has been one of the things that has affected me tremendously in my own life. So you touch a lot more people now. Uh, uh it, not it, in this society. I wished I could. I, I, I would hug people more. I would pat them on the back. But in today's society, um, I don't touch anyone. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's unfortunate that we have removed this aspect. And I understand why we have, because we're not a small society like the Pitaha. We're an enormous society where people's behavior is very unpredictable. No pitaha would just take a bow and arrow and start shooting other pitaha. Whereas in the United States, we have this bizarre fact that right now, if you go into a large public area, you could be shot. Um, this is this is the sign of a society that is deeply sick and has severe problems. And the pitaha is not a they're not a sick society. They're a healthy society, and so. Touching and, and showing warmth and affection to one another is a healthy thing to do. And it's not going to lead to bad things uh, like it could in our society. So unfortunately, because of the dysfunction in our society, we cut off some of the things that could make us uh, more affectionate with one another and more cooperative with one but, another. But how do, how do we improve this? Like we go back to living in the jungle? Uh, this is like... Uh, but we can't do that. I mean, my profession is, you know, I like to read books and I like to write books. And um, so um, it's hard to do that if you're just living in the jungle and, and have no clothes on and just have a bow and arrow. I've lived like that and I, I, I enjoy that and I see the appeal of it. But uh, the, the United States is not going to, for example, just to take one example, is not going to break into tens of thousands of small little hunter-gatherer communities. None of us have the skills to do that, and we're not tough enough anymore. We're very soft people. 
you know, Pinaha are incredibly resilient and very, very tough. Um, you know, uh, I watched these. What, what, what if that happens online though? Like 150 people community that they communicate online. I don't know. I'm just. <laughs> well, we can we can try to live that way. There are experiments, communes. You know, in the in the 1960s, there were a lot of hippie communes, and people were trying to live off the land and live at peace and cooperate. But it was never very successful. And in Israel, kibbutz, uh, uh, you know, experimental that seems to be more successful in Israel today than it was in the California in the 60s with hippies. But um, part of it is because when you live in a commu- commune, you're probably not going to get extremely wealthy. Um, and the desire to be wealthy and to be famous. This is another thing about the Peter Haas. Wealth and fame mean absolutely nothing. Um, I've taken very well-known people to the Pitaha and it doesn't ma- mean anything to them. You know, they don't care. I've, um, I remember a, with a Pitaha man, um, saying hello to the president of Brazil. And, um, after the president left, I told the Pitaha, I said, you know, he's like, he tells all the other Brazilians what to do. And the Pitaha was not impressed. This didn't mean anything to them. And, um, I've taken, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was with the, um, another indigenous group, not the Pitaha, when the rock star Sting came and cause he worked with this group for a while, the Kayapa. And, um, they knew he was wealthy because he could take them different places and they could see all the people. But in the village, that didn't matter at all. Nobody cared that he was famous. You know? Um, so, um, um, that's, that's, I consider quite healthy. Um, another thing I consider quite healthy is, uh, the idea that I don't need to have more than you have. Uh, we both need to be well off. Having said that, I, you know, I, I don't give away my salary to other people. I don't, I don't live, uh, as a socialist. I live and I keep my salary and, um, I like the fact that People sometimes know who I am, and they uh, they buy my books and stuff like this. But I, I realize that's artificial, and I realize that's not where my real happiness comes from. And I could be, in fact. Uh, what What do you mean is artificial? Um, it's not artificial in our culture, but for our basic, for the way humans lived for almost two million years. This was not a part of it. These are recent additions. And I'm not saying it's bad. Um, I used to want to be a rock star. You know, in the 60s, that was my goal was to be a rock star. And uh, I wouldn't mind being a rock star today. You know, I'll be kind of old now to make that attempt to do that. That's um, And uh, there's so many good people. There weren't that many really good people around in the 60s, but there are a lot of really great musicians around today. I think it's much more complicated, much harder and much more competitive today than it was in the 60s, even though I like 60s music. Um, so it's artificial only in the sense, it's probably better to say it's uh, recent. It's a recent phenomenon with our species. Um, so, you know, I don't have any problem with somebody who enjoys being famous. I mean, that's fine, you know. Um, 
But I do find that a lot of famous people that I have met also don't mind being in places where they're not famous. And they get along really well. I, you know, some of the people I've taken to the Pitaha have really enjoyed that experience very much. And uh, they were great there. They didn't ask for any special treatment. They did what they had to do as like everybody else had to do. And so those people I really, really respect. I find that just uh, just wonderful. They can go back and forth between these two kinds of lives. Um, so it's it would be artificial to the Pitaha because it doesn't have any meaning to them to be famous or to be rich. It's not artificial to us. But for our species as a whole, it's just some brand new thing. You can say, well... Somebody always accumulated more than others, but that's not really true. Um, in, in North America, for example, um, one sign of a great leader was to give away everything you had that you didn't need. Even what you did need, you gave to the others. You showed your leadership by giving to people, not by taking from them. Um, so, there are different ways of living. There are different models for how to conduct our lives. And one of the great things about doing field research on groups in the Amazon or in Alaska or uh, other groups, you know, uh, in Europe, whatever, it doesn't have to be these exotic locations, is learning different ways of life, different ways of conducting our life. Where There's a finite number of us, human beings in the world, there's an infinite number of problems. So the greatest thing we can do is learn from each other. And we can only learn from each other if we appreciate diversity and learning from people very different from ourselves. Um, so I tell people, if your close friends include only people who, who are your color, your gender, your orient, sexual orientation, then you're not going to get a lot of new information because you all probably agree on most things. But if you, if you have a circle of friends where people are different genders, different sexual orientations, different colors, you're going to get a lot of different opinions because they've been raised differently. And so you're going to think about the world in a, in a more varied way. I uh, always ask uh, the guests in this podcast, how do we learn faster? And so that's probably your answer to that. We learn faster, yes, by surrounding ourselves with diversity, not just surrounding ourselves, but by being part of that diversity, by respecting others and learning from others. So the fastest way I can learn is from a stranger, somebody I've never met before. By meeting strangers, I learn new perspectives. That's the fastest way. Another way to do it, which is not quite as fast as learning new languages and traveling. Traveling is very important, seeing other cultures and the way they live and eating different foods. You can learn a lot by going and eating foods you've never eaten before. Um, so I recommend that everybody try to live for at least a week with a family unlike them and follow that family's rules and eat that family's food. So if you're a Christian, maybe you should try to find a Muslim family. If you're a Muslim, maybe you should try to find an atheist family and, uh, and just live with these different families for a week or two. Um, and, and, and there is application, uh, couch surfing. I don't know if you heard about this. I travel a, a lot of countries in the world. You, it's free. Uh, ha families host you for free to their house and you put them a review they put your review and it's like uh, 
the most beautiful thing. Like you travel for free to a country for a week, for how many days you want. So yes. <laughs> I, I love that idea. I think that's a fantastic <laughs> idea. I've been saying what I'm saying now for decades and I'm glad to hear there's a, there, there's actually a, a, a facility for this available on the internet where you can get in contact. That's a wonderful idea. So uh, just to uh, close on what we left behind. So one million years ago, you think language uh, started appearing with some symbolic stuff. So this is what you are claiming. Yes, I'm claiming that language is over a million years old and the evidence for it is in uh, the symbols uh, and all the other accomplishments of Homo erectus, which we couldn't really explain without assuming they had language so so you think like if they didn't have language they were not going to do all these stuff to, to build boats travel around like cooperating uh, like that so you think that's a big evidence that they had they were communicating like yes and and even today in archaeological laboratories where graduate students learn how to make homo erectus tools Many experiments have shown that they can't learn to make those tools accurately without verbal instruction. So we believe that Homo erectus also needed verbal instruction in how to make these tools. Um, and that's more evidence. The complexity of these tools is more evidence that uh, they had language. So there's lots of evidence, I believe, that they had language. So uh, being said that about the history of language, now let's go to the future of language. <laughs> so there is a lot of, uh, I think is we are living in an exciting era with Neuralink, like maybe uh, they, we can put chips in our brain, we can communicate with, I don't know, facial expression or the chips can communicate. Like, what do you think about this stuff? You think like... Uh, uh, well, I think it's very plausible. I think our heads are full of symbols. We Everything we know, we know as symbols. Um, and, uh, but what do those symbols look like in the brain? Well, they're neuraling, they're in neurons. They're electronic somehow. Their physical form of the symbol in the brain is electrons, um, and, and chemical connections, the axons and neurons and, and, uh, the, the, the spaces, you know, all of this stuff that we know about the brain. And we know that language tends to get localized in all brains pretty much in the same place. Um, so, if we can insert things in the brain that interpret those elect can interpret successfully those electronic chemical electronic manifestations of symbols, um, we can translate from the neurons. We can translate from what's in the brain in in principle uh, electronically. And who knows what form that could take? Maybe it could come out in mathematics or in numbers, you know, just uh, or art or images. But somehow we interpret these symbols or it could just come out in language, which means that someone who's lost the power of speech and maybe can't use their hands so they can't use sign language, uh, they could become they could be able to speak again. Um, and um, um, but once the other thing too, as a future of language, assuming we have contact with people from other planets, with creatures from other planets, if I'm right and the basis of language is symbols, then any species from any planet in principle could communicate with any other species. We just need to figure out what their symbols mean. And you see this a little bit in the movie Arrival. Um, 
which was with Amy Adams, um, in which she was deciphering as she was a linguist and she was figuring out what these creatures were saying, uh, because she figured out their symbols. And, um, and so I, I predict that to be a, a likely eventuality. I think we can communicate with any creature in the universe if we give it enough time, uh, and we don't wipe each other out first. Um, but if you believe that language is biological and it has to do with the biology of certain parts of the brain, then maybe it wouldn't be possible to communicate with other species because they're going to have a totally different biology. But you still think that it's biological, but the difference that you believe is that it's uh, it just requires the the brain that we have to right. be, be function. So is so that what you explained to me before? Yes. Yeah, so I claim that the brain as a whole is the biological foundation for language. I don't think that language requires specific components of the brain uh, to function. Um, Normally, language is in a certain part of the brain, which uh, my colleague Evelina Federinko calls the language network. But if, if a child suffers brain damage early on in their life, they'll still develop language, but it'll probably be in some other part of the brain. So um, there's no part of the brain that we know of that's dedicated just to language. Um, so it's the brain as a whole, not specific parts of the brain that, in my opinion, make language possible. And that means that um, any brain that is capable of producing and interpreting symbols could communicate with our brains. Um, so uh, any creature in the universe that can that uses symbols productively to communicate, we can communicate with. So, uh, okay, you told me a bit about the, the further future, maybe five, ten years ago, but it depends how fast we grow. But like, do you see any changes like in the four, next three, four, five years, everyone speaking the same language, for example, uh, uh, like a lot of languages are lost, that like English becomes the main language of the world, Spanish or Chinese, like, do you see anything happening uh, uh, like that? For for the ability to think about the world differently, which is so crucial to our survival, we need all the languages that currently exist. We need to learn from one another. That's a nice ideal. But we know that what drives language uniformity is economics. And so if it is more economical for you, if you're going to make more money by speaking English or speaking Mandarin or speaking Spanish, then that's the language you're going to speak. And I, I, I want to stop you there, and I will tell you that I speak Greek, and now I, I as my first language, and I needed to speak English and do all this stuff and make money and become a YouTuber in English to be able to do that. So right. exactly what you said. <laughs> so, so I mean, you, you uh, like most people, you probably enjoy speaking Greek, you know, your native language with your grandparents, and it makes you feel at home and everything, but. But your own children someday uh, will probably, you know, they could just speak English because they, we find that in the United States, you know, people come here, immigrants come to this country and the mother and the father, they still speak the language of their home country very well. The children learn to recognize it. But by the time of the grandchildren, it tends to be lost. That's very unfortunate, I think. But it's economics that drives that. And so... Um, I would like to s 
think that everybody can become bilingual. So if you speak English to make a living, if people were like you, where they also spoke their native language, that would be great. But what we find is that people speaking two languages harder is harder than speaking one. And if you can speak one and, and make a good living, then why not just stick with that one? And that's what happens a lot. Like, I don't make any money speaking Pidaha. I mean, there's uh, there's nobody at the United Nations looking for a Pidaha interpreter because they are just a few hundred people that live in the Amazon. So I learn it because I'm interested in how humans are and the language. So for me, scientifically and personally and emotionally, it's wonderful to be able to speak it. But um, there's not necessarily any money in it. Um, and yet, if you learn... And, and also learning Portuguese. I speak Portuguese almost as well as I speak English, and I love speaking Portuguese. And some of my all, my best friends are Brazilians and speak Portuguese, and we just talk Portuguese. And um, uh, But uh, my salary in the United States is much better than my salary would be in Brazil. So I make more money in an English-speaking environment than in a Portuguese-speaking environment, although I prefer the Portuguese-speaking environment. So, so uh, just rephrasing what you said, uh, economics drive these behaviors of language getting exist, and also an indication of a language getting exist is uh, extinct. Is like the children uh, and the grandchildren, if they stop speaking the, the language, so, so it's an indication that we understand the language would be lower and lower. People's you know, speech. one of the only cases in history, hopefully there will be more, but one of the only cases in history where a language disappeared and then came back to life was Hebrew. Um, because when the Jews were scattered out of Israel, uh, they tended to stop speaking Hebrew. I mean, they started speaking a Germanized form of Hebrew Yiddish, but mainly Hebrew was lost until the 40s when it started again. And today, the Hebrew spoken today is not the Hebrew that was spoken a thousand years ago, but it is Hebrew, and it came back. And people are trying to do this with American Indian languages and other languages, um, and uh, it can happen, but it's very difficult to bring a language back. Once it's gone, it's gone. Interesting. I ha uh, this would be a bit weird question. But uh, I noticed when you were in the uh, Piraha, I I watch a lot of your stuff, and there is a word "ippiu." Oh yeah. Uh, so uh, and that means that it appears, and it and and it's like the pukaba uh, be whatever that uh, Peekaboo, English yeah. pickup English that we do with kids. Does that have to do anything? What's the relation with quantum mechanics? Because it's like when you see something, it appears to your reality. And when it leaves, because you are the observer, I don't know. It's like something that I was thinking about while you were talking. I was hearing your podcast. Oh, that's a very interesting idea. So the word is ibitpiu. And I argue that it's not just... A word, but it's a it's a cultural value about valuing things that are within your experience or just outside. So if a if a canoe starts to come around the bend in a river and I can see it for the first time, I say, I ibitio see the canoe. 
if it disappears around the bend in the river and I don't see it, the second I don't see it, I can say, I don't see it, which means that it, it comes and goes. Or if I light a match and the match is flickering, it's going, you know, the flame is, seems to almost be going out. I can say that the flame is ibitiuing. It is, you know, it's going in and out of experience. And so the general cultural principle is that for the pitaha, what is in my immediate experience is very important. And I tend not to talk about the past. And I don't tend to talk about the future. Uh, many, And they don't have future tense and they don't have past tense. And many people have misinterpreted, maybe because I wasn't very clear, that the Pitaha can't think about the past. They don't know about the past. Well, any Pitaha knows that yesterday they were doing something that they're not doing today and that tomorrow they'll be doing something else. So they do know about the past. They just don't talk about it. Well, uh, they choose not to talk about it, and what happened in the past is not important. What's happening now so is what's when they, when they're in the fire or in talking, they don't talk about stories that happened in the past. They're like, "I, I killed that animal," or like this. They don't talk about the distant past, so they don't talk about when the Pitaha first came to this part of the world. But the, yeah, they do talk about hunting stories, so they like to talk about. So the most common discussion is what I almost killed. Or what I killed for dinner today, or what I, the fish I caught, or the fish I almost caught, Shit. or my dream. I can talk about the dream I had, um, and you know sometimes I you can hear them talk about uh, yesterday. I went and I hunted in this place, and there was nothing there. So tomorrow I'm going to go hunt in this place. So they talk about the past and they talk about the future. They don't talk about the distant past very much at all, and they don't talk about the distant future very much at all. Most, almost all their conversation is about the present, and I have argued that that cultural value of the present being more important than then the past and the future, much more important, uh, leads to a number of interesting characteristics in their language and their culture. Um, and I call that the ibipio principle, all based on that, that concept of ibipio, what goes in and out of. Um, so the recent past is ibipio and the recent future, the near future is ibipio. And um, they don't have a word for yesterday and they don't have a word for tomorrow. They just have a word for today and a word that means other day. And whether it's yesterday or tomorrow depends on the context. And whether I'm talking about the future uh, or the past just depends on the context. Um, so you've got to be able to infer. The language doesn't tell you that directly, um, which means that it leads us, you know, for me, it's interesting as a linguist because it leads me to a different conception of how we make sense to each other. Um, it's a, that's a long, complicated story, but it's, it's really interesting to me. The, the initial question is, it was like, okay, they, they, ha when something comes to their reality, it, uh, they say, it, it pew in my reality. So, but, and there is a lot of theories now that, uh, maybe, uh, uh, like, for example, Donald, Donald Hoffman, I don't know if you, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he, heard about him he's saying like uh reality is an illusion it's like uh, the quant and about co and maybe uh, my question is maybe uh the piraha that may maybe closer to reality their society to what we our society is uh, be because of this uh, world in, in a way 
They they focus on uh, experience, although that doesn't mean that they are as realistic about things as we are, because they don't make the kinds of distinctions between fact and fiction that we make. Um, if I dream, that's not the same kind of experience as when I'm awake, and they recognize that. But they're both experiences, and they're both equally valid. So I talk about my dreams um, just like I talk about when I'm awake. Um, these are experiences I've had, and I don't need to know why I had the experiences. I've had them, and I can learn from them. Um, so maybe I... And so if I... If, if we're talking and telling stories, their story could be from a dream or it could be from an actual experience they had. And I have to keep asking them, is this a dream or is this an actual experience? And um, <clears throat> there's not much difference there for them. So at the same time they focus on immediate experience, that experience doesn't have to be what we would call real. It can be, you know, so... Um, it's just, you know, you can remember what you dreamt last night, but you don't think it was real. I mean, however you interpret your dreams, you don't think that they're the same reality as when you're awake. But for the Pitaha, they're different sorts of reality, but they're both reality. And they're uh, so they, in that sense, they're not quite like uh, our version of reality. You know, American or European, Western European versions of reality. They're a different level of abstraction. Very interesting. And who knows who is closer to the reality? Their perception, their way of living, or our way. <laughs> I, I have a, a. So I'm I'm a YouTuber. I have millions of subscribers on YouTube, and I'm thinking uh, I'm. I invested recently $20,000 to make all my videos in Spanish. So uh, uh, my question is, how much is lost in the translation? Uh, I mean, dubbing. And also, like, I, in my dream in the future is to make this uh, podcast uh, to translate it in 20, 30 language because I think it's a crime that uh, Greek people don't have access to the higher level of inf information in the world. Right. And right. so um, my question is like, can this podcast, for example, be translated because it's a lot deep, it's very, and, and what's the percentage of the value that the listener will get if it's like that and, and translated and also that is a different thing. Like someone right. speak and voice. Right. Voice over the thing. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, language isn't just a formal system all by itself. So it's not like mathematics where you could translate the symbols of math into the symbols of some other type of math, you know. So there can be Polish logical notation and there can be British logical notation, but they all, we can understand them because they're just these isolated symbols. Language involves culture. So for Western Europe, our cultures are pretty similar, um, whether you're Greek or British or Italian or uh, Romanian. Western cultures are very, very similar. There's obviously differences, obviously differences. But uh, compared to Chinese or compared to Arabic cultures, they're much more similar. Uh, but if you stand back even more, Arabic cultures are more 
more similar to Western European cultures than they are to Amazonian hunter-gatherer cultures. So there's a great deal of variety. And the farther you get away from, if you're speaking in European languages and translating, then the farther you get away from those European cultures, the more difficult comprehension becomes, uh, be, even if you're speaking in the other language fluently. So, um, you know, just to take a trivial example, if we're talking about uh, quantum physics, it doesn't matter how good the translation is. Um, if you don't know anything about quantum physics, you're not going to follow it, even if the translation is perfect. Um, so a lot of things that we don't know, a translation is not going to help a lot. Um, but because Western European cultures are so similar, uh, translations into those languages tend to work extremely well. Uh, there'll still be some gaps. I mean, not, not every, um, concept that's familiar to English speaking cultures will be familiar to Greek speaking cultures. Although j j just for me to s summarize that to make sure if I understand. So you are saying that the translation, it depends how effective it is depending on how much uh, the other person knows of what the video is about. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, you can leave out the word culture and just put it that way. That's fine. So how much do you know about that topic and all the different sorts of references in there? If you know all that stuff, then the language is going to be a great help. But if you don't know that stuff to begin with, then the language is not going to help that much. So it, so you're saying that basically maybe a translation for, from uh, English to Italian will be probably more effective than from English to uh, Chinese because the cultures are a bit uh, more closer yeah. with the Italian. My books are in Chinese, are in Mandarin. They're in a couple of different Chinese languages. And there is an all, actually, there is an also an audible version. So somebody's speaking in Mandarin. Uh, but, um, I don't have any way to check those translations because I don't speak Mandarin. So I, I, some of my Mandarin speaking friends say, Oh, yeah, that's makes sense, you know, but I don't know if it, they read the English version and they read the Chinese version and they're comparing them, but I'm sure it makes sense because a very intelligent Chinese person did the translation, but, um, um, often the translators talk to me, like the Russian translator used to talk to me all the time when these were going into Russian to say, I'm going to say it this way in Russian, because if I say it literally the way it is in English, nobody's going to understand what you're talking about. I said, yeah, whatever makes sense to you i mean you know you should and this is the thing about translation changing the context so you can give uh, the p so you can make these videos reality closer to their reality so they can understand okay. so for example if we're having a long talk about a desert you know some desert in africa or a desert in other part of the world and you translate that into pitaha they're still not going to understand it because they don't have deserts they have no idea. I mean, you could talk about a beach. That's the closest they have to a desert. But there's just a lot of stuff there that they don't know unless some Pitaha were to go to Europe and see all the things we're talking about. Then they could say, oh, that's this, 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 and this, and this, and they could translate it, uh, you know, for the Pitaha. But there's, if you don't have that concept in your language, then even if somebody comes up with a word for it, you're not going to understand it. 
So, uh, so just to summarize for my person, uh, uh, growth on this. So let's say if I want to translate this podcast in the future, so I need to get the right translation first, right? On right. every, la- on every language. May, and it might be uh, a specific person doing it that understand this stuff or linguistic stuff, maybe that the terms and stuff that they can translate them in, in their language. And then, the voice of over that someone will dub our voices that can be it will be easy so if the translation get to get right is the yeah although i i will say that automatic machine translations for european languages just keeps getting better better and better and better so some of the problems that i mentioned will be much less severe working in English in European languages because the people working on these on this translation technology have been doing this for decades. This is something that everybody's been working on for a long time. When I, when I used to teach at the University of Pittsburgh, a lot of our people worked in this area. And um, so I would suspect that at some point in the future, translation from one European language to another will be almost perfect. And already they can translate fairly well from, say, Dutch to Japanese, but it, it has to be a very limited domain, you know, like technical manuals. They can translate those fairly easily, but novels, those are harder than, uh, to translate. I have, uh, uh, so now with, with artificial intelligence is the most famous thing every day in the news, all this stuff. So how does, uh, you, are, you are a linguist and it's artificial intelligence, large, large language models. Can you exp- explain me how does uh, that work and how do you, where do you see AI going with all these large language models? Um, yes, uh, to a degree, these are, these are a fundamental breakthrough. Um, and I don't think many linguists, well, I know many linguists deny that they're a great breakthrough, but they're a tremendous breakthrough because you have two models of how language works. You have the model that it's, um, human beings are born with language hardwired into their brains. Um, and then you have the idea, for example, my idea and the idea of other people uh, long before me that um, we learn things by inf- inference from signs. Large language models are still quite unlike humans, but they learn to sound like, to talk like humans and to communicate with humans not because they have anything biological in the computer or or any specific knowledge about language in the computer, but because they have a great inferential capacity uh, so that when they're exposed to lots of data, they can come up with generalizations and sound like humans. This means that it is not necessary to have um, a biological basis for language. Um, other than the general intelligence of ability to do inference very well. Uh, so I think they're of fundamental importance. I'm going to be at Google headquarters in a week, and I'm going to be talking about exactly this while I'm out there. I mean, everybody at Google knows a lot more about uh, 
large language models and artificial intelligence that I do, but um, I'm going to give the perspective of what this means for theories of human language. So you're saying that this is a big breakthrough and it shows that it, it language doesn't need a biological uh, body to start acquiring. So you're saying that maybe uh, they are conscious, do, are, do they have, is they, uh, or maybe touch on these uh, rounds as well and explain maybe better what the, all these well, there's, topics. There's, there's, two, there's basically two different models of, of the origin of human language. There's my model, which is symbols plus inference about what they mean. And inference, there are three types of inference. There's deduction, which is going from something, some general knowledge to specifics, you know, like um, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, Socrates is mortal. Okay, so that's a deduction. And uh, the first people to develop that were in Greece, <laughs> the, the Greek philosophers. Um, induction, which means going from a specific, like I'm taking marbles out of a bag and... Um, the first 10 are white, so I say the next marble I take out of the bag is going to be white. So I am going from specific information and making general claims. So I go from the deduction is going from general to specific, and induction is going from specific to general. And then there's a third type called abduction, which is just guessing. I mean, really, it just means, oh, I didn't expect to see this, but I did see it. But if this were true, you know, um, then it wouldn't be a surprise anymore. So I'm going to guess that this is this is true, you know. So, um, so to give an example, um, I I um, I see um, somebody um, walking, and I don't know anything about them, and then I see them walk into, um, I see them put on a professional baseball uniform. And I say, well, that's surprising. Why are they wearing a professional baseball uniform? Oh, well, if they're a professional baseball player, then that makes sense. So I'm guessing that they're a professional baseball player. Um, so we guess all the time. And that also improves our knowledge. Okay, so one model of language is that we figure out what people are saying by because we know their symbols and we're guessing or we're deducting deducing or we're inducing what they're saying um or the knowledge of my language is somehow built into my brain when i'm born okay those are the two models chomsky for example said that no computer would ever be able to do um some of the things that we now know large language models are able to do so how do we explain this they don't have any special knowledge. It's not biological, and it's not built into them either. They're working on very general, non-language-specific algorithms, and they're using statistical inference to, um, to figure out what's being said and to guess at what's being said and to uh, come up with the right responses. They're able to do that so successfully that we no longer have to assume that you need innate knowledge to learn language. That doesn't mean that children aren't born with innate knowledge. Maybe they are. 
But it really doesn't make a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective to believe that they're born with innate knowledge when we know that machines can learn it without that innate knowledge. And now, in fact, a lot of psychologists, especially uh, uh, Steve Piantadosi, who's a psychologist at the University of California at Berkeley, has written several papers showing how very simple algorithms can help us learn just about anything. And he's also written a paper on chat GPT and why this means that many theories of language just don't work because it's able to learn language without any of those special assumptions. So I think it's a momentous experience and I think chat GPT is and large language models in general are going to have all kinds of implications. You know, for me as a teacher, um, all my colleagues are worried about how do we keep students from writing their essays using chat GPT? Um, well, I'm going to, it's simple for me for next year. I'm going to, um, they have to write with pen and paper in class and they can't bring iPhones or computers to class. They just, I'm going to give them an essay to write and they have to write it right there. So I know they can't cheat because they can't use any electronic devices. That's not my long-term solution perhaps, but it's going to be the solution I use this year for all my classes. So chat GPT, large language models are going to transform education. They're going to transform our theories of language. They're going to be important not only for practical, practical tasks, but for theoretical understanding of the world. I think it's one of the most important breakthroughs in technology in our recent history. And that doesn't say that they're conscious. No, doesn't. Consciousness doesn't really have anything to do with it. That's another thing. You don't have to be conscious to speak, uh, to, to have a language. And we know that people, for example, go unconscious, and when they wake up, they can still speak. Uh, so somehow they didn't have to be conscious to have that knowledge because they didn't lose that knowledge. I mean, you, there are different ways of interpreting it, but... No, it shows that you don't have to have you don't have to have a brain to learn language. You don't have to be conscious or anything. You just need to be able to infer certain things. Now, um, if you want to have a connection with your audience, maybe consciousness helps. But um, this raises all sorts of questions, right? So, how can they communicate effectively if they're not even conscious, or are they conscious, or could they become conscious someday? Um, I don't think we understand conscious well enough to know to say that they can't have it or do have it or don't have it or we just don't understand what that means except for me as an individual. I can't tell you what it's like for you to be conscious. I just sort of know what it's like for me to be conscious and, and I assume because we're of the same species that whatever I'm feeling, you're feeling something similar. Uh, but I also think that war is possible because we tend to tell ourselves that other people aren't conscious like we are and they don't feel like we do and they're not people like we are so it's okay to kill them i think that's what war is based on um and i think we need to realize that we're not that different as people there are there are profound differences but but those even those profound differences when compared with other species are meaningless do you think this large language more will solve all the problems that uh, in the world, like cancer and all these things, do you think is going? I think they're going to help a lot. Um, I mean, 
in all the major technological breakthroughs in human history, the wheel, um, you know, the language, the, language. Oh, no, you said, you said, you said technological breakthrough, well, language which is, is the biggest tool that we've ever invented. Yes. So starting with language <laughs> and then things like wheels and hammers and stuff, computers, all of these took us forward tremendously. The computer has advanced us tremendously and led to artificial intelligence. And that's going to lead to more things. So there doesn't seem to be any limit to human advancement except war. So what we have to mainly hope for is that we can stay out of war. Um, and I'm never confident that that's going to be the case. But as long as we can keep from killing everybody, um, all of these things represent hope and advancement and levels of enjoyment of life. You know, I look forward to the, you know, maybe there's coming a time when because of technological breakthroughs, nobody will die, you know, and, uh, and maybe people will stop having children and there will just be, uh, the same people living all the time. It sounds kind of boring, but who knows what's going to happen. Um, and, uh, I hear a lot of people say, uh, well, I don't want to live forever, you know, and, and but I do. I would be quite happy to live forever as far as I can see. I mean, I enjoy my life very much, So, but I'm not going to live forever. But maybe these technological breakthroughs um, could lead to all these new possibilities for people that maybe your generation, but not my generation, will be able to benefit from or, or younger generations. So you touch on one topic uh, before. You said that the most uh, fundamental thing uh, on learning is storytelling. Uh, yes. And uh, the only thing that I am doing uh, with my videos is basic storytelling. Uh, yes. Uh, Telling a story. Do you have any tips or uh, for teachers or for me or for anybody that is listening this to how to tell better stories? <laughs> I think the main thing about stories is that they have to be slightly ad in advance of the culture, uh, you know, so they can't just be telling people what they already know. They have to be build on what people know to take them to new places, new experiences, new creative uh, experiences, imagination. And, and so this is one of the great things about podcasts and, and YouTube and all of this is that suddenly everybody has a story to tell and we can hear an infinite amount of stories and not all of them are told well it takes real talent to tell stories well so that you get millions of followers on youtube if i had a youtube channel i'd probably have two or three followers because i'd be talking oh, no, about I, 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 in. I don't think so you are a great storyteller oh, the best in the world so <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you could if i teach you how to do the right way the thumbnails and titles yeah. and the introduction of the video you can get millions of subscribers <laughs> as well <laughs> but we'll see uh, but but i i love looking at different podcasts and being on podcasts and meeting people who who tell stories in different ways uh, to different audiences um and it, it is really tremendous, um, uh, you know, and, and with my students, I'm always trying to think of how to tell the story better and get them involved in the storytelling. And I think one thing about the generation today that wasn't true when I went to college is today's generation doesn't want the professor to stand up there and just talk the whole time. Like when I was a student, they want to be involved. So they want the storytelling to be a dialogue. They, they want 
the professor to sort of be a guide, maybe, but they want everybody wants to participate in the story and all the chat, you know, like the podcast, when you have comments, everybody participates, they all become part of the story. And I think that's a very healthy thing, very good thing. And it takes a lot of skill to develop that. And so I always admire people who do that well. So you said two things. You said that you need to give them new information or build some new uh, thing in your story for them to be interested to not tell them what you already know. Because a story that you heard is the most boring thing, even if it's told. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's like correctly. telling somebody a joke they've already heard. You know, it's not funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the second thing is like involving the other person in the process is a good uh, tool and tip to yeah. tell a great story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you've got to involve people. There's a certain arrogance to thinking that uh, you know all there is to hear. You know, people should hear, just hear you talk. Um, the best we can do is get inter get really good dialogue going. Uh, I find that I learn more that way when people challenge me. Um, it, when you have really good students and you're a teacher, You learn much, you learn so much when you do that. I become, I'm comes out of every class smarter than I was when I went into the class because of the students who argue with me. And I don't believe that. Well, why don't you believe it? Um, and then they'll tell you why they don't believe it. And you think, well, that's, that's good. How can I tell this story differently to make it persuasive? Or maybe I should stop telling this story. Maybe they're right and it isn't a good story. Um, So these are the things we learn through dialogue that we don't learn just by narrative. So, uh, so I, I have a, a question that I ask all the guests, which is if I give you one trillion dollars, how do you use it to make impact in this world? Uh, well, I would, um, I suppose given my own background, I would use a large part of the money to buy up, uh, all the land that, um, Indigenous peoples occupy in Brazil and and um, and make sure they own it them out and give it to them so that nobody can take the land away from them because that's very very important. Um, Why is important? So they can maintain their traditional ways of life if they want to. Okay. So this is what you're going to do. Go take the money and go and spend it to buy all the land, all the piraha, all the land, and give it to that ownership. Yes, yeah, to, to make sure that these indigenous reservations are secure for the future. What do you want to leave behind in this world? Um, well, I'm a fan of the Beatles, so I want to say that um, the um, I want to leave behind love. And, uh, you know, so, so the most important thing to me, uh, when I die is how do the people who knew me remember me? Um, and, and if that's an example and they want to, they say, well, Dan was a very loving guy. I want to be a very loving person. Um, then I think that's, uh, that's pretty good. Um, you know, I, I don't want to be seen as somebody who was, um, you know, just, out to make a career or something like that, you know, so, uh, but people will remember you however they, because everybody has their own story about you. And, uh, the most you can hope to do is to 
shape the world's narrative so that it becomes a bit more a bit more loving i'm not going to have a lot of money to leave behind and um um uh so i suppose appreciation for others and diversity and the things i've written about and spent my life doing these are the important things and it all to me becomes a variety of of love for my fellow human beings uh i make uh videos and i get a lot of views in the videos so what is some uh, topics that you think they deserve attention for me to make videos about that you what do you think well from my perspective um videos on cultural diversity are are really important uh and showing different ways of life um um and making those exciting like showing how um you know why do why do missionaries try to convert other people and how do other people respond to that how do other people deal with sadness how do people deal with hunger and and the necessities of life how do do they complain like we complain and um just exploring to me the most interesting thing is exploring the variety of the human experience and the variety of human emotions and the variety of human knowledge these are all uh, things that i'm most interested in well uh, i want to say a big thank you to you because i i would be messaged to do this podcast for a long time and i was not i, I didn't respect your time and i I uh, I cancelled one time and you uh, and I said I'm sorry and you accepted to do this podcast again and I'm very 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 happy that you accepted to do this again so thank you for your time and I love you. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Um, now that I know you, I I, uh, I I I I have a better context for understanding this. So I'm very happy that I was able to be on. Woohoo! I love you. Have a great day. Thank you guys for watching. Okay, great. Okay. Bye.